Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. This is another special plague time edition of Uncommon Knowledge, which means I'm seated at home. Uh, Bjorn Lomborg is president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, a think tank dedicated to applying economic analysis, including cost-benefit analysis, to the great issues of the day. Bjorn is the author of a number of books, including his 2001 bestseller, The Skeptical Environmentalist. Bjorn Lomborg's newest book, just out, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn, welcome. And you're in, you're in Sweden. Thank you. I'm in Southern Sweden right now, yes. All right, welcome from Northern California to Southern Sweden. Bjorn, two quotations. This is you in your new book, False Alarm. Quote, in almost every way we can measure, almost every way we can measure, life on earth is better now than at any time in history. We need to take a collective deep breath and understand what climate change is and isn't. It is not like a huge asteroid hurtling toward earth. It is instead a long-term chronic condition that needs attention and focus, but one that we can live with." Close quote. That's the first quotation. Here's the second. Swedish schoolgirl Greta Thunberg, Thunberg, speaking last September to the UN Climate Action Summit Committee. Get a load of this. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. Bjorn, if you're right, and it's a condition that needs attention, but that we can live with, why would the United Nations permit itself to be harangued by a 17-year-old schoolgirl such as Greta Thunberg? What is going on? Well, I think there's a couple of answers. Let me just first talk about the factual issue uh, uh, of this. So global warming is a real problem. It's man-made and it's something that we should fix, but we also need to get a sense of proportion. Uh, the sense is this is the end of the world. And I, I think uh, 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 Thunberg displays that very well, you know, that people really, really frightened. You can, you know, you can sense that she's really frightened. Uh, Washington posted a survey of all uh, US school kids. 57% uh, of them are alarmed of cl uh, climate change. Uh, mm -hmm. There was another study across the world of 28 nations that showed that almost half the world's population now believes that global warming is likely to lead to the extinction of the human race. So we're, wait, 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 we're one that. side, half the, the education, half, half, half the world's population uh, of the adults in the world. So 48% believe that it is likely global warming will lead to the extinction of the human race. So clearly we're telling people this is the end of the world. And that's also what we see on media. And that's certainly what Greta Thunberg has picked up. But I think most people have gotten the memo. This is pretty much the end of the world. 
On the other hand, we have the UN climate panel, and that's what I'm saying. We should actually look at the facts. We should look at both the economics and the science about climate change and say, how bad is this? Well, they actually tell us that in about 50 years, so by the 2070s, the impact of global warming is going to be negative. That's why it's a problem. But it will be equivalent to losing, on average, somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of your income. So just to give you a sense, the UN also expects we'll be much richer by 2070. Right. They expect that by 2075, the average person on the planet will be 2.63 times richer than he or she is today. So what climate change will mean is instead of being 2.63 times richer, we will only be 2.56 times richer. That's a problem. It is not the end of the world. And you then ask me, why is this happening? Well, I think there's a lot of, there's a confluence of different things here. First of all, media loves terrible stories. They've always done right, that. Right, right. But climate change just gives you such a large array of terrible stories. And I think we'll probably get back to them. I'd love to share at least a few of them and try to debunk them. Uh, but you know, fundamentally, there's lots and lots of opportunities to say, we're all gonna die and you know, and it generates lots of clicks. At the same time, we also have politicians, and that was your question about the UN. A lot of politicians want to do good in the world, and I think they're, they're generally good people, but they also need to get reelected. They need to stay relevant. And mm -hmm. one of the ways they do that is by telling you, and this is probably the most powerful phrase they can have, the world is going to end, but I can save you. Right. Vote for me. Vote for and me. And that's what they get to say. And they even get to say, and the cost will first come in the election cycle after next. Right. So, you know, right. it's the perfect opportunity for politicians and for media to tell you this is the end of the world. However, the problem is, of course, if we end up believing them, we will throw everything at climate change problems and forget the many other problems that we should be focusing on. Right. Bjorn, I wanted, I wanted to do just what you said and go on to a couple of examples of stories that you write about that demonstrate the way the press portrays the issue. However, something you just said, how can it be the case? I'm not challenging you. I'm just asking. How can it be the case that 50 years from now, as a result of climate change, we end up 2.5 times richer instead of 2.7 times richer when climate change how is it that it makes us poorer, but only a little bit poorer when climate change feels like you go out into the California sun on an especially hot day in July and the sun is glaring and it's uncomfortably hot and you say to yourself, oh my goodness, 50 years from now, it'll be like this year round only work. How is it that, can, that climate change is only a kind of minor problem, mm -hmm. something that, that retards economic growth instead of causing massive systematic damage and poverty. Yeah, and, and again, let me just, before I try to give you an explanation for that, let me just point out, this is what the UN Climate Panel tells us, this is what the world's uh, only climate economist uh, uh, who got the Nobel Prize, uh, uh, Nordhaus, many, many other economists have looked right. uh, and, and done for you know 30 years. So there's a simple reason, but it's one that's hard to grasp. All right. It's the idea that we'll actually adapt to much of this. 
So, you know, if you look, for instance, and, and, and let me tell you one story of, of, of these, you know, the, the world is going to end. Uh, last year, a big story on, you know, cover, cover of uh, Washington Post, lots of papers around the U.S. and around the world was new study shows because of global warming, we're going to see higher sea levels, which is absolutely right, which will mean 187 million people will have to move. Right. Not surprisingly, some other media went further and said 187 million people are going to drown. Uh, but of course, if you have 80 years warning, you're probably not going to drown from this. But the main fact is the paper that actually estimated this showed that that is totally, totally unlikely because it assumes that all of these people who are now going to get flooded will sit there watch the waves lap up over their knees and then right. eventually their hips and eventually they'll drown over 80 years and do nothing. But if they actually do something, and, and this very study says it is unreasonable to assume that you will do nothing. However, if you do reasonable stuff and actually fairly cheap stuff, and most of this will simply be to protect yourself better. And the obvious thing is a dike, but there are many, many other ways that you could right. do that. If you do these very simple, fairly cheap things, Instead of 187 million people getting flooded by the end of the century, it will be 305,000 people. So 600 times less. And, and remember, just to give a sense of proportion, every year, twice that number move out of the state of California. So clearly we can handle 300,000 people moving away around the globe over the next 80 years. And this is the difference between saying it's the end of the world. 187 million people drowned, obviously, is a right. huge issue. Right. Uh, 305,000 people who have to move by the end of the century at very low cost is, at best, a minor inconvenience. Right. And this is the reason why, when you add up all these costs, yes, if you go out into the California sun, actually, you know, I come from Scandinavia, I would, I'd probably actually be like, yay. Uh, but if, you know, if it's really warm and unpleasant, it is like an average day, what, three, 400 miles down south. Right. And it's not like they don't live well. They have made their homes, they have made their uh, set up and their infrastructure such that it is less cumbersome for them to have it warmer. That's why people live well, both in Atlanta and in Massachusetts. You live well in both of these cities because you have your infrastructure ad adjusted to the temperature that you have. What we, the reason why there's a cost is because we've adjusted to what used to be our temperature and it will now deviate. That will have a cost. But the reason why it's fairly small is because it'll happen over 80 years. And we know technologically that we're very well able to handle this. So just to give you a sense of proportion, for all of the sea level rise around the world, it is going to cost us much less for almost all countries, except maybe very, very uh, small, tiny island nations. It's going to cost much less than 0.1% of GDP to fix it. So that's why you get this situation. It is a problem, not the end of the world. Jorn, in False Alarm, you write about the work of the American journalist David Wallace Wells. And in some ways, this book, I take it in any event, in some ways, I take your book as an answer to his 2017 book, The Uninhabitable Earth. And we'll talk, I know you and David Wallace Wells have been in touch, and we'll, we'll come to that. I'd like to come to that. But can I just go through two or three of, well, this is continuing the theme. David Wallace Wells in his 2017 book sketches out sketches out a world that I find easy to imagine. 
it, it you you can picture this dystopic world and i just like to I'd like you to reset my imagination. It's one thing to talk about the facts, and of course that's vital. But how do you? How, how should we think? Of, how should we picture? That's it. How do we picture the future? All right. So here's here's David Wallace Wells, unbreathable air, for example. Quote: The fraction of carbon dioxide is growing. High-end estimates suggest it will hit a thousand parts per million by 2100 which I will not live to see, but it's not that far off. At that concentration, human cognitive ability declines by 21%, close quote. How can we get richer if we're all going to be a fifth stupider? Hmm. Yeah, and, and look, again, the point here is, this is, first of all, uh, the thousand requires an almost un unimaginable increase in especially coal power, uh, uh, which I think, nobody, not even uh, David Wallace Wells, would really believe in. But the second part is to remember that we routinely fix problems like this. So most people live, don't live outside. So, you know, a, a lot of these problems, I, I, uh, I haven't actually looked very much at the, at the productivity uh, impacts of, uh, I, I know that there are some, some of these studies. Uh, I've looked at productivity impacts, for instance, on agriculture and many other things. Uh, but most people live outside you know, when they're poor. But when mm -hmm. you get inside, uh, when you get rich, you move inside, you move most of your production, most of your office work, most of the things that you do inside. And that's where you have air conditioning, so you handle the temperature. And of course, if this really turns into a big problem uh, with, with, uh, with uh, a, a high PP, uh, so a high level of uh, CO2 concentration, right. we will fix that by filtrating the air. But again, the, the, the point here is to recognize that there is none of these problems that are unimaginable to handle. It is one of those that are very, very easy to you know, sort of envision. I think it's a good point that you make uh, when, when you look at most movies, they are very, very good at telling you this story about the end of the world. You know, yes, we're, we're yes. almost used to seeing these, uh, these dystopian, uh, uh, dystopian futures. But it's funny if you'd actually think about what it would have looked like for someone to watch a movie of our world 100 years ago, it would be unimaginably amazing. Right. Almost right. everything. Right. It'd be Better a much more peaceful regard. world. We'd be living much, much longer. We'd have conquered a lot of the diseases that were ravishing the world 100 years ago. We'd have much more food, much better education, all these things. So those kinds of movies are very likely phenomenally wrong. So actually, when you look at the, what, are, what are the consensus, both of economists, but also what the UN climate panel estimate, we will likely be in the order of five or 10 times richer by the end of the world. And importantly, not just the rich- By people, the end of the century. But by the end of the century, right. but mm -hmm. the world's poor. Uh, let me just give you two more of David, David uh, Wallace Wells here. Starvation, I'm quoting him again. The basic rule for staple cereal crops is that every degree of warming yields a decline of 10%, which means that if the planet is five degrees warmer at the end of the century, we may have as much as 50% more people to feed and 50% less grain to give them, close quote. And Bjorn says, oh, for goodness sake, the green revolution, we know how to grow. You just say, don't even worry about it, right or not? Well, uh, I mean, I think we should worry about global warming and I think we should think smartly right. about this. But I mean, but starvation. We need to get, yes, we're, we're definitely not gonna see 
pretty much anyone start because we will not have unless we do really badly but has nothing to do with climate change and everything to do with how we set our system unless we do really badly we'll have nobody poor remember we've gone from a world where in 1800 about 90 95 percent of all people were extremely poor what we define as extremely poor today that number is less than 10 percent by 2100 it will be zero it will be effectively zero but but that's not the only thing. You also got to remember that uh, uh, David Wallace Wallace and many others like to uh, uh, like to make the arguments. What happens if you keep planting the same stuff, no matter what happens? So you know, I I used to right. grow wheat. I'm gonna grow wheat. I'm gonna plant the same day, even though it's gotten hotter and hotter over the last eighty years. Surprisingly, my wheat fails. Most farmers aren't that dumb. They actually smart people. They will start planning other sooner or they'll start planning different stuff. They'll start moving, you know, so we actually have, when you take that into account, the models show a very different outcome, much, much lower reductions. However, you also need to remember CO2 is a fertilizer. We know that, you know, it, gardeners routinely put in lots of CO2 into tomato drink greenhouses to make them more plump. If you add on the CO2, you again get much lower reductions, sometimes even increases. And then the final point is agriculture is a very, very tiny fraction of human output. It used to be, and in many very, Huge, very poor yes. countries, it's still the vast majority of your economic uh, 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 input. If you're rich, it's one, two, three percent. In 2100, it'll be half a percent. And so the reality is, even if we had to put in more effort into growing food and of course by 2100 we'll be doing it in big factories with with lots of led lights and all that stuff yes it'll be more expensive even in this worst case scenario but it will mean instead of costing 0.5 percent it'll now cost 0.75 percent and actually i'm not just picking those numbers out of the air because the biggest study that's also the sum, summation of the biggest uh, uh, roundup su study of what will be the impact of global warming on agriculture. At worst, it'll cost us 0.26% of global GDP because we'll have to put in more effort. Yes, again, it's a problem. No, it's not the end of the world. And telling us that, that it is when it's not, is not only, you know, right. it sells more books, it actually makes us scared about the wrong things. Bjorn, false alarm. Back to enough of David Wallace Wells. Back to you. The book again is false alarm. You distinguish between mitigation policies, that is policies that are intended to slow or eliminate the introduction of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, mitigation on one hand, and the adaptation on the other hand. And that's just what you've been talking about right now. Um, Joe Biden, the backers of the Green New Deal, the entire climate lobby in this country, I shouldn't, call, I shouldn't denigrate them by calling them a lobby, but people concerned about climate, they're all on the side of mitigation. False alarm, I'm quoting you, such climate policies often make life worse. Mitigation policies often make life worse, especially for the poor, close quote. Explain that. Well, so fundamentally, if you're going to, and, and look, I'm not, I didn't invent the distinction between mitigation and adaptation. It's a sort of standard uh, way of thinking about it. If you do mitigation, so basically cutting carbon emissions, it means essentially making energy more costly. If it didn't, 
if it actually meant, you know, some people will tell you, oh, we'll actually get rich doing it. Well, then let's get going. But then you don't really need any help. You don't need any subsidies. You don't need anything else. We'll just do it right. because it's cheaper. The reason why it's hard is because it's more expensive. Look, that does not necessarily mean we shouldn't do it because everything you like costs money. Better school costs more money. Better healthcare costs more money. It's fine to spend money, but we just need to recognize that we're actually spending money. We're spending resources that we could have spent on other things. So getting people less effective, more expensive, less reliable energy, for instance, has real costs. Just to give you one example, we know that one of the things that especially hurt the poor is the fact that they spend a very large amount of their money on energy. So if you make energy more expensive, it simply means that they'll be able to, for instance, warm their houses in the winter less well. That has real consequences because that actually makes more people die from coal. Remember, coal kills many, many more people than heat, surprisingly to some, but this is you know, very, very well established. And we have a study that showed what happened, for instance, with fracking back in around 2010. It was sort of a natural experiment. The price of gas dropped dramatically. One of the impacts was that people who heat their homes with gas could suddenly afford to heat their homes better, especially the poorest of Americans. What happened was that saved, uh, according to one estimate, 11,000 people from dying every year. If you ramp up the cost of gas because you are concerned about climate change, that means some of those lives are again now going to start being lost. There are real consequences to making energy more costly. We might want to spend that, but we should be honest about saying it has real costs. Bjorn Lomborg and False Alarm. It is perverse. You've been very you've been very calm and reasonable so far in this discussion, Bjorn. There are moments in False Alarm when you're angry. It is perverse to hear rich people piously claim that we should help the world's poor by cutting carbon dioxide to make their future slightly less worse when we have huge opportunities to make their lives much better, much more quickly, and much more effectively, close quote. Explain that argument. Well, if you look at the world's poor in the poor countries, I was just talking about the uh, poor in the rich countries like in the US, but mm -hmm. if you look at the vast number of billions who have incredibly simple problems like their kids are dying from easily curable infectious diseases, they don't have access to enough food, or they don't have good education, there's something first about the idea of a rich, well-meaning guy coming down and saying to you know a mom whose baby might die from malaria tonight, saying, you know what? I feel your pain. I'm really going to help you. Know, you know what? I'm not going, I'm going to bike to work tomorrow. What? I'm going to cut a ton of CO2 from the atmosphere, which will help your kid's descendants, if the kid actually survives, in a hundred years, a tiny bit. It's not that it it doesn't do anything, but it's just that it seems disproportionate to the actual problems and what that person could have done by, for instance, giving her malaria medication. There are some things that are very, very simple, and we have, I think, a moral responsibility to do first. And unfortunately, as we're getting increasingly worried just about climate, we're forgetting almost all these other concerns where we could help much better much more efficiently and actually help today's people who are really poor instead of uh, people a hundred years who are going to be much better off. Well, so how to make things better. Innovation. Again, I'm going to quote you in false alarm. The best way to combat climate change is to invest 
in green innovation. We should explore fusion, fission, water splitting, and more, close quote. All right, now you have to defend yourself against the charge that now you've gone crazy. Now you're talking about what, nuclear energy, cold fusion? What, are, what on earth are you talking about? Be serious, Bjorn. Hmm. No, so I am serious, but I'll tell you why. So fundamentally, if you look at most ways we fix problems, it is through technology. But unfortunately, most ways that environmentalists want us to fix problems is through sack and cloth, I think is the word, you know, do with less. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll typically tell people, no, 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 don't drive so much, don't eat so much meat, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. It, first of all, has very little effect. Uh, we've seen that, for instance, with the coronavirus. We've just shut down almost the entire world, and yet the impact by the end of the century, calculated by one climate economist, sorry, climate, uh, uh, climate scientist, is going to be one five hundredth of a degree Fahrenheit lower temperatures by the end of the century. So despite we've almost shut down the world, it has almost no impact. It gives you a sense of how large the problem is that we're trying to fix. But mm -hmm. what should you then do? Well, take a look at Los Angeles back in the 1950s, 60s. Terrible pollution. It's the standard sort of environmentalist argument. Well, you got to, you know, don't drive. Stop all right. those cars. Right. Shut down uh, and, the freeways. And yes, that would, have, that would have been one way to solve the air pollution problem. Unfortunately, it would probably have been incredibly impossible to do it. And it would certainly have been fantastically expensive. What happened was somebody innovated the catalytic converter in 1974. We've installed catalytic converters in all cars. Yes, it was not cost-free, but the basic point is now you have much, much cleaner. You're still lots of problems. I'm not defending that, you know, there's not other right, things right. to be done, but fundamentally a simple technological change can make a huge difference. And it's much, much easier to convince everyone to do. So on climate change, most climate campaigners are basically saying, look, I know the world got so much better because you have all this access to you know, electricity and you can go all places and you can have fossil fertilizer that actually can feed you and all that stuff. That's all nice and good, but I'm sorry. Could you, you know, turn down the light, stop driving, stop doing all that fun stuff and be less content. And of course, that's easy to say to really, really rich people, but to all the world's poor, it's essentially telling them, I'm sorry, you just got to stay in poverty. Those are very, very hard arguments to make, and I think fundamentally immoral. How about we instead said, let's dramatically ramp up our investment in green energy research and development. If we could innovate some sort of green energy down below fossil fuels, the price of, uh, of fossil fuels, we would have solved global warming. And now you just quote a few of the solutions, but obviously we should look into battery storage for solar and wind, and we should also look at solar and wind. But also, you know, Craig Venturi, the guy who invented, uh, who cracked the human genome back in 2000, yes. he has this idea, make these algae out on the ocean surface that basically take up sunlight and CO2, produce oil, then we'll harvest them, put them in our uh, gasoline driving uh, uh, cars, and just use it like we normally do. But the trick is they've just taken up the CO2, so it'll be CO2 neutral. The point here is there are tons of these different ideas. We are not saying that we should do all of them. Most of them are going to fail, but invest in all of them, and we just need one of them. Then they will be cheaper than fossil fuels, and not just rich, well-meaning Americans will do it, but the Chinese, the Indians, the African, everybody else will switch. 
So Bjorn, from where you sit, and I know you sit different places, you're seated, you're seated in southern Sweden right now, but the last time you and I spoke to each other, you were right here in Palo Alto. You get here to Silicon Valley quite often. What's your sense of venture investments in green technology? Are there, I have read, I, I know nothing about this by comparison with what you know, but I have read, for example, that there are new designs of much smaller, much, much safer, much, much cleaner nuclear that are at least in principle possible. Nuclear energy is a possibility. Mm -hmm. For example, you just mentioned Craig Ventner and his notion of developing algae, which produce oil. I remember reading not too long ago about the idea of taking huge wind turbines, really huge ones, like North Sea oil platforms, and towing them out to the middle of the ocean where you were in the first place. They don't you don't, they don't despoil the landscape, yeah. but also where the, the, you can get, make use of the currents down below, you can make use of much more violent winds up above. So I guess what I'm getting at is, it's very easy to talk about all of these things. And on the one hand, whereas the climate, people concerned about climate tend toward the dystopian view of the future, you and I could talk each other into a really giddy sense of, of joy about this. We could talk ourselves into the other kind of high tech future, which is just beyond our grasp. What's actually happening? If these technologies are plausible, somebody should be investing in them, right? Yes. So, so there's two things to that. One is the private venture capital that goes into actual research and development is fairly small. So it's estimated about $6 billion uh, per year. And then in energy, uh, uh, governments around, yes, in energy uh -huh. R and D, okay. yes, right, and in uh, uh, in green energy R and D, uh, and in uh, uh, for governments, it's about fifteen billion dollars. We are proposing, and this is the Copenhagen consensus. So, in twenty-seven world's top climate economists, seven, three Nobel laureates, uh, to to spend about a hundred billion dollars. So dramatic ramp up. So we're not talking about just a little adjustment. It's a lot more money. But at the same time, much, much cheaper than what we're just spending in subsidies to solar and wind right now. The problem with the existing uh, sort of venture capital ar argument is that most of these will only invest if they can see a payoff in the next five years. But it's much right. more likely we're talking about an investment future of, say, 40 years. In, academ uh, in, uh, in economics, there's a good argument that there's this perpetual underinvestment in almost all research and development because most really groundbreaking uh, uh, research and development, if you come up with a great idea, it's really only going to be marketable in 40 years when, of course, your patent has run out. So in some sense, there's very little incentive to invest in these long-term, really visionary ideas. That's what we need to do. However, the world is not doing that because we're so focused on spending on green energy that you can see on TV. So, you know, the wind turbine parks and the solar parks that look good, like we're doing something. Let's just remind ourselves right now, the world gets just over 1% of its energy from solar and wind, despite all the spending that we've done. And even by 2040, it'll probably just be less than 5% that comes from solar and wind. So we're still talking about a very small bit. We need this innovation and we need to spend a lot more to actually get these long-term uh, benefits and that's of course what you know when you're a scared environmentalist you will say but we don't have time we got to do something next year but we've been doing this for four, for 30 years and gotten almost nobody nowhere right. we're not actually going to solve this by just simply saying let's uh, go crazy for the next year so bjorn now now here's where here's where the the um the interviewer sitting in northern california the seat of 
capitalism, begins to suspect his interview subject, who is seated in southern Sweden, a socialist state for low these many decades now. <laughs> so who gets to, first of all, how do you gather this $100 billion that you want to invest? And who makes the investment decisions if not venture? If, you see what I'm getting at here. Mm -hmm. yep. The inclination, or at least to an American reader, you get it if Bjorn is saying, leave this to the free markets. The markets are very good at raising capital, allocating capital, assessing risk, and so forth. But that's not what you're saying. You're saying, no, the market isn't big enough. It's not going to raise enough capital. We need to do more. And my question is, how? How do you raise it? And how yes. do you deploy it? Yes. So very briefly, you are not going to solve global warming by just having this incremental tinkering. So, you know, venture capitals are going to make a little better wind turbine next year. But what we really need is, you know, two, three hundred percent better. I'm not sure that's the right way to, but a lot better. A lot better. You need <laughs> quantum yeah. breakthroughs, what you're yes, asking. Okay. You, you really need quantum breakthroughs. And that is about having government invest in these technologies way before they're ready. And I, I get the idea of saying, but surely governments are not very good at this. Well, actually, they're good at making general research progress. We know that from national uh, natural science. Uh, 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 sorry. Uh, uh, oh, what is what it the called? NSF, the the National Science Foundation? Yeah. Is that what you're yes. right, right, right. That, right. In this country, right. Those people. Yes. So the, the ways that we actually give to individual researchers come up with great new ideas that eventually will be turned over to venture capitalists and, and companies to, made it, to be made into marketable products. One good example of that is actually the fracking revolution which didn't happen because we had lots and lots of capitalists who said, yay, let's go after this. Because for a very long time, most people said, can't be done. So this was mostly for at least 10 years, you know, when Mitchell was trying to do this back in, uh, down in, in Texas, this was done with money from the DOE, from, you know, subsidies, from small studies, from a lot of different breakthrough institutes, you know, assembled this whole sort of story of how that went. And it was only once you could start to say, oh, this is a really good idea. Then all the venture capitalists comes in and that's great. So we want to spend a little money in a lot of different places with pretty much individual researchers and people who have you know, almost crazy ideas because it's fine. We're going to look at a lot of different ones, but, just but like what you talked about. Yeah. So, so I can, here's the way the world works. Angela Merkel <laughs> would be willing yeah. to listen to you because that's the way Europe works. You all know each other over there and you all have a, you're all very comfortable with government, large government action. It doesn't work that way over here quite in, in anything like the same way, really. And yet you can't solve this. The United States is still overwhelmingly the center of the kind of technological development that mm. you seek. So what, what as a what what's, and if you haven't thought it through quite this far, that's fair. You're, you, you're making a wonderful and important case in false alarm, but I'm just wondering, have you thought through what kind of mechanism, if we could make Bjorn Lomborg dictator of the United States for 24 hours, what mechanism would you set up to get the kind of basic R&D in green technology done that you believe needs to be done? How would you do it, Bjorn? Well, it would be spending in through the National Science Foundations 
say right. let's let's set up uh, 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 blue ribbon panels that would identify what are the things that we would like to see uh, you know, breakthroughs on you know cost efficiency on solar panels uh, better safety for nuclear power uh, the fourth generation nuclear power plants and a lot of other things I'm, I'm not a technician in any one of these areas I'm right, sure they right. would come out with you know say a hundred different things in each one of these different areas and they probably also uh, look at a lot of things that will probably be possible or ideal or you know uh, this would be great to look into then you'd simply ask individual researchers not to come up with can you spend you know cylindra like money can you spend half a billion dollars because we don't want to go down that route but can you spend say one million dollars or half a million dollars on advancing our knowledge in this area or the other now i i and just to you know be be frank uh, uh, so so uh, uh biden is actually, you know, in his $2 trillion climate plan, he's actually proposing that the US should be spending $100 billion on research and development every year. My plan, if, if, you, if you do it proportionally to the US, is only talking about $30 billion. So you right now spend $30 billion a year. $7 billion. Yes. Uh, so right. you right now spend about $7 billion in the US, you'd ramp that up to 30. This is not Unimaginable. So I, fi I, finally, I finally be, think yeah. I think I finally understand now. Essentially, what you would do is use the same the same government university complex that came into being during the Cold War, after the Second World War. During the Cold War, it and in the beginning, it was for sure for defense purposes. But now we have very well established, huge transfers. You can have some doubts about whether we should be transferring quite so much money from ordinary American taxpayers to our universities. But that's essentially the network. It already exists. The kind of thing you're talking about yeah. already exists. The government raises the money panels of one hopes dispassionate scientists, rank order, the kinds of projects they'd like to see pursued. There is some democratic oversight of this because it reports in one way or another to the executive branch of the government and the money goes to universities and researchers get to work. You're not in, you're, is that right? In other words, you're not talking about yes. inventing an entirely new structure. We already know no. in some basic way how to do this. Yes. And, and okay. the other point is to recognize if we don't do this, if we just rely on sort of incremental uh, uh, improvement, we might get lucky and somebody is going to come up with this uh, process anyhow. But we're simply talking about spending a very small amount of money compared to all the other money that right. we're talking about spending on climate and dramatically increasing our chance to actually fix climate change. Re just remember, the US is spending about 50 billion or more per year on subsidizing solar and wind, which we know generates almost nothing. So, you know, the, the, the easy deal would be to say, stop doing that, but start investing a lot more in research and development. You'd save money and you'd make a much better chance of actually fixing climate change. Bjorn, you are either a magician or exactly right, because you have now got me thinking, he makes sense, it, tens of billions of dollars sounds like a lot, but actually it's very modest in this world of huge subsidies and huge, all right. Last few questions, Bjorn. Two quotations, both from David Wallace Wells. Wallace Wells in 2017, no matter how well informed you are about climate change, you are surely not alarmed enough, close quote. Wallace Wells last year. For once, the climate news might be better than you thought. It's certainly better than I've thought. Davis Wallace Wells is cheering up. What's going on? Well, uh, 
I, I think he's cheering up because he was incredibly worried. So now he's only very worried or <laughs> more like that. So, th so the, the, the main point was uh, there's a scenario out there that's called RCP 8.5, which is uh, also what we talked briefly about at the very beginning. So, you know, the idea that you're just going to have incredible amounts of use of coal throughout the century and everybody's right. going to, you know, uh, uh, and we already know that's simply not true, increase. right? That, that, that seems very, very unlikely in, in pretty much all accounts. If what, what we're now seeing is uh, more and more people are getting to terms with, oh, wait, that was not a correct scenario. Remember all the scare stories that you also hear about, the 187 million people we talked about at first comes from that scenario. So what it basically means is we've just downgraded the number of, you know, the scenarios are not quite as bad. And actually the development seems like it's going to be more like the RCP6, which is less bad than the RCP8.5. But what, what, what has not happened with David Wallace-Wells is that he's basically saying, all right, 8.5 was terrible. This is only, you know, moderately terrible. But what he forgets is the real big things that make a difference is, for instance, taking into account adaptation, taking into account that we have uh, uh, fertilization from CO2 and many of these other things that will dramatically reduce the impact. And that's why I don't think we're well served by saying, I've read a lot of news from uh, Washington Post or other uh, news outlets, looks really scary this must be bad. I think we'd be better served by actually looking at what do the best economists estimate is the total impact when you add up all these different things from, for instance, hurricane damage. Again, we talk a lot about it. Hurricane right. damage right now costs 0.04% of global GDP. By 2100, we estimate the total cost, despite hurricanes getting worse, will be 0.0%. Wait a minute. Hurricanes are going to get worse? I thought... so. So very briefly, hurricanes haven't gotten worse yet, but That's models right. seem to indicate that hurricanes will get fewer, but stronger. I and see. All stronger right. outcompete fewer because stronger actually goes to the cube. So you, you will get much more damage. But even then, damages will go from 0.04% to 0.02 because we will be much better able to deal with it. And all this right. is what Wallace Wells forget. And of course, also, in all this hyperventilating reporting, we forget 0.04 or 0.02 is not the end of the world by any means. It's obviously terrible for the people who it's happening to, and absolutely we should be caring for them, but we should stop believing this is the end of the world. All right. Bjorn, we have a campaign in, coming up here in this country. We have a choice. We have an well, election. Yeah, I've heard about that, yes. And I am very sorry that it's going to be sloppy when it comes to questions of climate change, but we're gonna to have to make a choice here. Let me, for the purposes of the next few moments, make you an honorary American and ask you to tell me what you think. Here's President Trump in 2017. No responsible leader can put the workers and the people of their country at this debilitating and tremendous disadvantage. The fact that the Paris deal hamstrings the United States while empowering some of the world's top polluting countries should dispel any doubt as to the real reason why foreign lobbyists wish to keep our magnificent country tied up and bound down by this agreement. It's to give their country 
an economic edge over the United States. That's not going to happen while I'm president. I'm sorry. So, so Bjorn, he's not going. Trump's fundamental point here is, if you make me choose between dubious climate treaties and agreements and protocols and the American economy, I'm going to choose economic growth every single time. And he's right about that, is he not, on your own argument that what we need is economic growth? No, he's not saying what you're saying. He's not taking the next step and saying we need to invest in innovation. But the fundamental point that we need modern growing economies is correct, is it not? So there's two parts to that point. First of all, remember that there are many I'm trying very hard to get a man in Sweden to endorse Donald Trump. I just want to see uh, yes, what yes. happens. Yes, all right, uh, let's, let's see that experiment unfold. Uh, so partly you need to see growing economies and we will see that. And that's especially true in the, in the, in the poor part of, of the world. Uh, again, when we talk about this, this woman with a baby with, uh, uh, that's possibly gonna die from uh, uh, malaria, clearly what she needs is to be lifted out of poverty and being able to have economic growth will not only give her better health care and better ac access to food and better uh, education and all of these things it will also make her more resilient towards climate change so growth and especially for the world's poor is absolutely essential prosperity is one of the ways that you fix climate change this does not mean we should have a, that we should not have a conversation about saying look we are willing to waste a or forego a little bit of our growth mm -hmm. to have a better environment. And one way that you should do that is to recognize global warming is a real problem. By spending some resources on actually fixing right. climate change, we will end up better off overall. And that's where I think Trump is not phasing up to this conversation. Now, right. he's absolutely right for a lot of people because, you know, uh, uh, famously at Washington Post last year, uh, surveyed people, they, you know, uh, uh, a vast majority of Americans, even Republicans would say global warming is either a serious threat or an existential threat. But more than half of them weren't willing to spend $24 a year on global warming, which sort of indicates the difference between saying, Yes, in one frame of mind, I you know I envision all these right. terrible dy dy uh, uh, dystopian futures. On the other hand, I envision I actually have to pay my energy bill, and I don't want to do that. So I think there's a real challenge here, and that again underscores when you try to spend thousands of dollars per person per year to fix climate change, you're going to fail. That's why right. we need to find a really cheap way. Bjorn Joe Biden during the primary campaign, he had a plan that called for spending $1.7 trillion on the climate over 10 years. And now he's ramped it up. Just last week, as you and I speak here in late July, just last week, he announced that he would spend $2 trillion over four years. And this is the work of a task force that was chaired by represent Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So, $2 trillion, that's $500 billion a year in additional federal spending. Much of it, as far as I can tell, and I put this to you, if much of it, it just looks like political pork, spending of jobs programs, paying off this interest group, the other interest group. However, there are some teeth in this as well. He would outlaw 
outlaw the use of coal and natural gas to generate electricity within 15 years. And then there would be investment. So what do you make of the Biden plan? You've got sort of huge amounts of traditional political pork. You've got actual legal teeth beginning to be set into motion. And then you do have some of Bjorn's sought after, yearned for investment. What do you make of this? Well, that's exactly right. I, I actually did a tweet on that. First of all, it's really, really hard to get a, a cost estimate of what all, all the different things he wants to spend money on. Remember, because they have no idea. Large... Nobody knows, yeah. right? They, well, yeah, okay. well, but that's, I mean, and it's not just because, you know, he's that one politician. That's true for pretty much all politicians. But a lot of it seemingly will go to build uh, or rebuild the uh, interstate highway system, which is probably not going to be helpful for the environment, but could be good for other reasons. So let me just, you know, he, good he for clearly says, All right. uh, well, I mean, I, I think you know, when you okay. drive okay, a, I'm being certainly like to have Sorry. less Go ahead. Go ahead. Few, few, fewer potholes. But anyway, uh, but uh, some of the things that he's proposing, we know are bad deals. For instance, weatherization or uh, uh, efficiency in houses. Uh, the biggest study from Minnesota shows uh, of about 40,000 homes shows that you vastly exaggerate how much you're actually going to save. So what it turns out is that typically the investment only pays back about half of that in savings. So it's just a bad deal. Don't do that. But it's the kind of thing that sounds good. Uh, but he's also proposing on the other side to spend more on research and development. If he does that well, that could be a real boon. But then there's a lot of stuff in between that I think is probably just not going to work. When you talk about uh, uh, going uh, uh, carbon neutral in the electricity sector in 2035, yeah, good luck with that. Uh, that's mm. not what any of the models uh, uh, predict. So certainly, there are many other countries who also said that they want to do this, but it's not going to happen because we don't know how to. And if you look at the, his sort of bigger proposal, 2050, the US will go net carbon zero. We only have one country that has promised to do this that have actually asked an independent assessment of how much is this going to cost us. That's New Zealand. The center-left government in New Zealand asked their own preeminent uh, economic institution to find out how much would that cost them. The answer is to go net carbon zero. To go net carbon zero by 2050. Right. It'll cost them 16% of their GDP. So translated to US terms, that will cost $5 trillion a year by 2050. That's more than the entire federal budget right now in, in, in today's dollars. So just to get a sense of proportion, this is not going to happen unless we have much, much better technology. So I applaud Biden for wanting to think about this. I worry that mm -hmm. he's going to spend a lot of money badly. I don't like the fact that Trump is only focused on saying so, we want the economy. And so Bjorn, here's what should happen. Here's what should happen. Yes. Donald Trump should give a full dress environmental speech climate change speech, environment speech. And he should say simply, we know how to address this problem. It isn't $500 billion a year. It's going to be $30 billion a year or even $50 billion a year, one-tenth what Joe Biden intends to spend. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be on That's research smart. and development. And we are going to use American, we will use uh, America's distinctive strengths in the world, our our ability to innovate, and we will make real progress on the problem. And Trump will please conservatives, such as your friend, by saying, I'm going to spend one-tenth what Biden will spend. And he will please my friend Bjorn by saying, we're going to be serious about this problem at last. And that's what he should do. Have we just not 
So have we not just established would, one plank in his campaign? You'd be happy with that, right? I'd, lo I'd love to see that. But look, again, and I know you want to sort of force me to uh, choose between keep uh, one or the other. And I'm, and I'm <laughs> so happy I'm not American, so I don't act, I can actually opt out of that. But I would love either of the candidates to pick up that particular plank. This is really about saying, let's spend a lot less money, but let's spend it much smarter and actually do smart stuff, actually tackle climate change instead of just you know running around scared and being uh, silly. Bjorn, Bjorn, last question. Um, I know you're very far north, you're in Sweden, but even, even there it's getting to be evening. The sun is beginning to dip in the sky, even in the summer in Sweden. So here's the last question. Listen to this quotation from a recent article uh, in, uh, by journalist John O'Sullivan. Quote, a vast international machinery of governments and UN agencies now exists to promote the strategy of climate mitigation, the word you used earlier, mitigation, which they have successfully transformed into the world's largest secular religion. The largest secular religion. Now, here's, here's what strikes me about that. Your book, False Alarm, like all your work, and you have been at it for a couple of decades now, is relentlessly rational. It's also other things. It's cheerful. It's wonderful to read. It's engaging, but it is rational. And if this, if people are willing to listen to this 17-year-old Greta Thunberg bring tears to her eyes and scream and harangue about, about a state of affairs that just doesn't exist, it's because they're being irrational. And that somehow or other, this climate change addresses something within people that is not rational, that is for want of a better term, I don't think it's quite the right term, but it may be, but John O'Sullivan says it's a religious impulse. It's some, some sense of sin and redemption and the planet is coming after us after all we've done to the planet. Whatever it is, it is not sheerly rational. And Bjorn will never be able to address climate change in the whole, among, among in democracies, the, 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 the overall democratic impulse, unless Bjorn himself can somehow or other find a way to address this, this sheer impulse. What do you make of that? Well, I, I think there's a lot of right to this. So, so fundamentally, you know, if you get to do something with your life that is about saving the planet, that's a lot more fun than getting to say, I made sure that the, uh, you know, we ended up spending $30 billion per year on research and development that we still can't see the outcome of instead of 15. I, I get that. And, and this is why it will always be an uphill battle to be more rational. But, but somehow the fact that everybody or a very large number of people are, are relatively irrational in this whole space doesn't seem to me to be a good argument for saying, all right, then let's just throw, throw, uh, throw caution to the wind and, and, and just join the, the party or, or maybe join the party in the opposite way and the, you know, the sort of uh, screaming the, the opposite sort of things. Oh, this is going to end our economy. And we're all going to go poor and, and we need to you know, stop, uh, stop all this UN socialism or whatever it is that you want to you know, make up of, of, of stories. I think that most people most of the time are concerned about very, very different things, which is also why we have the $24 from the Washington Post uh, study. You know, most people 
actually, you know, have to get their kids to school or right now just have to handle them back at home. Uh, you, you need to get your, uh, your job done. You need to find out when, when is my favorite show on. There's lots and lots of other very, very uh, 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 sort of domestic things uh, you need to take care of. And so most people want to hear, how do I handle climate change in five minutes? It is an easy way in to tell you, if you don't do something, we're all going to be dead. But you know, you can do these five th easy things, and we're all going to survive. And that makes you one feel wonderful. And honestly, you know, if people are just willing to settle for that, I don't think I have anything else to come with. But I think a lot of people are a little sort of really, really. And to them, if you can get more people, and you know, Greta Thunberg is a smart girl. If she had had the opportunity at her library to also read my book maybe the world would have looked very different. So I think fundamentally, this is about making sure that people get the information in a readily available way. What the UN Climate Panel actually tells us, yes, it is a problem. It's not the end of the world. Let's be smart about it. And if we get not 50%, because we're not going to be successful enough to, to get that, but if we get a you know substantial number, so let's say 5 or 10%, that keeps sort of challenging the end of the world story and say, actually, <laughs> that's not the full story, is it? We will be better at this. So we have a saying at the Copenhagen Consensus. We we work with a lot of governments around the world, especially in the developing countries. And you know, we our our saying is, we're all about economic rationality, but we don't say we want to get it right. We're about making it slightly less wrong. If we can make this slightly less wrong, I will be very very pleased. Bjorn Lomborg, author of False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Greta, that's False Alarm by Bjorn Lomborg. Go buy a copy. Bjorn, thank you. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.